Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Uh, Now the real news, of course, is that Julia will be back at the beginning of next week. Is that not thrilling? Very thrilling indeed. Welcome back to Dishing on Julia, the official companion podcast of Julia, the Max original series inspired by the life of Julia Child. I'm your host, Carrie Diamond, and I'm the founder of Cherry Bomb Magazine and the Radio Cherry Bomb Podcast, where I report on some of the most interesting women in the world of food, including trailblazers just like Julia. I would like to make a toast to these two indefatigable women who together made for us the feast of a century. Thank you, my love. And you think, when I met you, you didn't know how to cook. No. (laughs) Season two of Julia is officially underway, and for the next several weeks, I'll be dishing with creatives from the show, as well as special guests to give us a little perspective and food for thought. Today, I'm speaking with Julia food stylist Christine Tobin. Christine and her team are responsible for all the gorgeous cooking, dining, and restaurant scenes in Julia. And I can't wait to hear about the magic they make in season two. You can't devour life and nibble at food. No. Oh, who's nibbling? <laughs> <laughs> then it's Deb Perlman of Smitten Kitchen. Deb is a best-selling cookbook author, blogger, and recipe developer. Like Julia, her warm and approachable style has established her as a trusted culinary companion for home cooks everywhere. Find out what Deb's been up to and the role that Julia played in her life. Wherever we've gone far enough, Europe or Asia or back home, we've always made friends over food. Friends, I'm sounding the spoiler alert. If you haven't watched episode two yet, you might want to tune in first and then check back in. We'll be right here waiting for you. Episode 2 finds Julia and Simka still in a bit of a food fight over the recipes to include in their new cookbook. They agree to a cook-off in which their guests will decide what makes the cut. Democratic, yes, but their editor, Judith Jones, isn't so sure about this approach. Why are we playing parlor games? Why not put all the dishes in the book? Because they don't work in an American kitchen, Judith. Try telling an American housewife to go strangle a duck. James Beard, played by Christian Clemenson, is back. He arrives in Provence with his friend, Francis Field, played by, are you ready for this, Stockard Channing. Hello, Stockard. Back in Boston, we're introduced to Elaine Levitch, played by Rachel Bloom. Elaine has been hired as the new director of the French Chef television program. Avis picks up on a few culinary red flags regarding her new love interest, Harvard professor Stanley Lipschitz, played by Danny Burstein. Will you think I'm totally insane if I pick off all the parsley? A little. 
but I have grandkids, so I'm used to it. The episode comes to a head when Simka accuses Julia of cheating to win votes for her recipes, and even worse, of being a fraud. But she realizes the importance of Julia's friendship and extends an olive branch. Well, I suppose that's French aristocrat for... I'm sorry. (laughs) Now, let's talk to our first guest, Christine Tobin, the food stylist behind all the sumptuous food scenes in Julia. Heavenly, isn't it? It's so nutty and soft. You must try the Lou next. No, I will not be seduced by shelf. Christine Tobin, welcome to Dishing on Julia. I'm so excited. Hi. <laughs> One of my favorite things about the show is all the food scenes, and you are part of the team. You lead the team that makes the food magic. So let's jump right in. Can you share how you got started in the world of food styling and what drew you to this? I'm trained in fine art, so I went to school for many, many years for traditional mediums, printmaking into sculpture, into illustration, and then I left school as a performance artist. And what paid my way through school was working in restaurants since the age of 17, all throughout finishing high school into college, and then out of college as a gallery artist, we work in restaurants. And it was my time at Oleana. I was there for six and a half years in Cambridge with Chef Anna Sortoon. That was my first experience seeing food approached in a way of art and standing and watching her dish after dish after dish create these stunners. And something just clicked in me and inspired me to think, oh, there's this thing called a food stylist, right? Fast forward a few weeks, she reached out to me and asked if I would assist her with her first cookbook, Spice. And that was my first food styling gig. And from there, I went to assist a stylist in New York and here in Boston and started my own path as a food stylist on still work. Fast forward to when I'm 40 and with two babies that I got my start in film work by uh, a cold call from a producer for the job Labor Day, which I shared with Susan Spungen. She's the one who ultimately hired me and trained me and is still a mentor of mine. Since then, I've been working primarily with motion work on movies and television here and now abroad. And you've built a real reputation for making food that's not just beautiful, but food that's also edible. Mm -hmm. I know a lot of people, when they think about food in movies and in TV commercials, they think that a lot of it is fake food. But you are known for making real food for the actors. I make real food for the actors. I'll make fake cakes if it's more of a like a set dressing element. Here in my local union, I'm the only food stylist. So I'm sort of making up my own rules. Aside from the experience of working with Susan, who only works with real food, I didn't know there was any other way. And we don't have access to like mold makers and and some of the, those businesses that you'll see a lot more in, like, say, Los Angeles. And it's taken a while for, for people to come to me and expect something other than something fake. And I'm like, no, no, like, you might have the wrong person. I only work with real food. And then we get over it and I move on. All the food that you make that we see in the series comes from Julia's recipes and her cookbooks, yeah, correct? This is true. Why did you decide to do that? I wouldn't do that to her. It's there. And those books have made my job so easy that there'd be no reason to do something other. I feel a sense of responsibility to represent her and this part of her, and I'm very protective of it. I've not yet, aside from the Sheba cake in season one, and that was one of the The first... The famous Queen of Sheba cake. The Queen of Sheba Mm -hmm. cake. That was 
the one time that I was asked to sort of go Hollywood on it. So we doubled the recipe to make it look bigger because everyone saw it. Like I showed up with it and everyone's face got deflated a little bit. But from that point on, I said, the recipes are the recipes. Like the cassoulet recipe that you'll see in season two. That is her recipe from start to finish. It's a three-page recipe. And we did it because that's the right thing to do. That's a great scene when Julia and Simka, her co-author on her first cookbooks, are fighting over the cassoulet and what is an authentic cassoulet or not. Super charming. Folks don't know yet, although if you were eagle-eyed and you watched the trailer, you probably saw that the Julia crew goes to Paris. But we open in Provence. You got to spend time down in the south of France. Tell us some of the challenges filming on location in a different country versus filming on, on set. I just think here, I mean, I follow my stomach wherever I go. And so that's part of the excitement when we travel abroad or go to other cities to do our work is just explore. So luckily, when we landed and first started in Antibes, we had a good solid four or five days on our own. So we took to the streets and found some special places that would want to in case we needed something, you know, I didn't know what we were up against. At that point, we hadn't met our culinary advisor, Christophe. We didn't know if we had a food truck or not. So all those logistics still had to be ironed out. But in the meantime, we just took in the atmosphere and took in the farmer's market and tasting things and getting an understanding of the seasonality and smelling all the lavender and smelling all the lemon zests and things like that and get an understanding of, of being centered and being there to then do the work. And the south of France is so known for its culinary heritage. Were there any decisions you made down there, sort of like game time decisions based on what you were seeing and smelling, where maybe back in the planning in the United States, you thought it was going to go one way. But when you got down there and saw the produce and saw what was going on, you had to change. I wouldn't say it would. I would change anything. I, I think I would enhance I did a lot of enhancing using what I would find. So, you know, like the, the lavender, the various nectarines and peaches and stone fruits, dry herbs, things I would be putting into jars and, and such because it isn't just, what I present isn't just like the food for the prop for the camera. It's also being responsible for the whole space, like an installation art. So then it's like collecting those things to live in the space to bring this, that last layer to bring that space alive or help bring that, that space alive. So it's in those travels and footings that I would collect and be inspired by. And we did like a lot of pickling because of the heat down there. Like things are a bit more sensitive, you know, instead of putting a lot of fresh things out, like we would pickle things quickly and putting into jars. And then of course, you know, our, our lighting director would shine his light through it, just makes such a lovely mood and scenes. So there's some things that were done strategically, knowing that there would be those possibilities in, in the shooting of it. So in this episode, there's sort of a grand cook-off. It's sort of a forerunner of the uh, food competition shows that we've come to know and love so much, where Julia and Simka are battling each other to see what dishes will make the final cut to go into their second cookbook. I was just bowled over by the amount of food in the scene and just the incredible work that you and your team did on this. Was this the hardest scene of the series so far? No, but definitely the most fun. It was beautiful. It was everything that, everything I've ever done led me to pull that off. And I mean that in being a lover of food and loving to cook food and share food. Like I couldn't have asked for 
anything more in an experience from, you know, the recipes that I sourced from the cookbook and choosing what dishes would be Julia's, what dishes would be Simka's. And sort of like being a member, like a part of this game between them, there was, I think, three dishes scripted. And then I would have to come up with, I had to come up with all the other dishes that would, I thought would complement. So that was just such a fun task. And then once we were there in that location and the land was so grand and filled with olive trees and there was like a horse that you would hear every once in a while that chop by. And just touching the nature of it, gathering flowers, like just having your feet on the ground and touching things and smelling things, like just brought a whole other dimension to preparing the food when it came time to, to get to that point. And what's really special about that scene is the homeowner invited me to pick from her garden. So on the side of the house, they had multiple lemon trees and orange trees and this picking garden. So eggplant and zucchinis and peppers and, and lots of tomatoes. So I brought that into the, to the mix and cooked off the land. Can you tell us some of the dishes that were served oh, during yeah. the feast? I would love for you to read the menu for everybody. Okay, Julia prepared for this feast, leeks vinaigrette, sliced potato with lemon and garlic, zucchini stuffed with almonds and cheese, haricot vert with baby vegetables and beurre blanc, boudin blanc with sweet peas, roast saddle of lamb with buttered breadcrumbs, roast squab with braised endive, and for dessert, she made a tear genoise with a citrus cream and summer berries. And then for Simka's, she was in charge of the white asparagus mimosa, Provencal salad of peppers, Provencal style of langoustines and clams, buttered trout almondine, marinated stewed rabbit with herbs and olives, roast veal marrow with purslane. She was in charge of the pandemie. And then for dessert, she made wine-soaked summer peaches with vanilla bean, savoyon with dipping biscuits. And then James Beard made his fried chicken. So that was the, the closer. But to go back to the Genoise cake, which is... An example of how working together with various others in, in departments, something that is very unusual, usually like you have to stick in your lane. I had a meeting with Daniel and Chris to go over the menu, go over the scenes. It came time for the cake and I had showed them uh, an image of a Genoise with fresh cream and berries. I said, I'd like to you know, adorn it with flowers that are on the location. So there were all these gardens everywhere. So I would pick the flowers to, to put around the the cake. And I said, what I like it to be is, is to mirror and enhance that famous photograph that Paul Child did of Julia, where she had the wreath of flowers. So with their permission, Daniel and Chris, I asked hair and makeup and John Dunn, who's our costume designer, if they could make something that she could wear during the feast and then also have the cake just to bring it all together as a, an homage to to that photograph. So on top of the feast itself, this is something that I'm just so happy happened. I noticed that she was wearing a, a flower crown in that, and I, I couldn't help but wonder if that had something to do with that photo that her husband Paul had taken. Yeah, it and it all started cool. with a cake. <laughs> and then I was seeing them like, you know what? Let me find something. And I said, what if? And then and they that loved is so the cool. idea. For you, how is season two different from season one? Well, because I'm still shaking, it was very ambitious. <laughs> it was intense in a way because of, I think, the food scenes were, we have multiple characters interacting with the food, 
prepping the food, presenting the food, large tablescapes, large kitchen scenes, regardless of a location or not. It's just the amount of planning ahead of time and designing and communicating to make sure that all the props are there, all the set dressing is there, and so that we all are a well-oiled machine, which we were. I think the operation of season two went super smooth just because we had already established a line of communication between all of us. I think what was interesting that happened in season two is being given the opportunity to sort of like go as big as I wanted to go and I didn't have to ask as many questions and feel entrusted by everyone that when I'm showing up at a set right before everyone shows up and I blast it with food that no one's questioning it, they enjoy it, just sort of like growing into that a bit more and appreciating like that. I never want to get into trouble. (laughs) I'll put it that way. So I didn't get into any trouble in season two because I was allowed to do and be me. Did you get in trouble in season one? You didn't tell us that story. I did once. I did once because there was a, a roll of wax paper that had to be period correct. Wax paper and what came was wax paper that had the lines dotted on it and said, like, wax paper, wax paper, wax paper. Someone's like, well, why can't this work? And, you know, it's like a, it became like a very short-lived thing. I'm like, I'm really sorry. It's not period correct. Did that make it into the show? Uh, you see the wax paper, but you don't. It, they had to run out and get the, the real wax paper. Ah, uh, got it. Okay. The unmarked like, I wheel. I did not notice yeah, that. Yeah, just things like that happen. Everyone's well, but I, I like keeping things Got really it. tight and tidy. I just like to <laughs> have a foundation set and be prepared for something that might come up. But for the most part, it, it rarely it rarely would happen. And in season two, we do a lot more like sort of rolling takes where you see people just enjoy and be with the food and it not being so precious. That was a lesson for me, for sure, as someone that is, you know, who works in this capacity that... It's not about the hyper imaging of it and preciousness of food. It's it's just allowing it to fall and be half eaten. Like all those things you have to let go of eventually because it's really not up to me. It's up to whoever's directing and whoever's touching on the other side of the wall. I never heard that term before, rolling take. So that's essentially they start filming and the actors are just allowed to mm-hmm. interact however they mm-hmm. choose. Yeah, that happened a couple of times. And it was it was great. That must be beautiful for you. Yeah, it was. I mean, we were we were prepared for it. We were pre- always prepared for an, anything, really, especially at the a scene that towards at the last episode. You might not get super tight on this food, but you have you get enough information visually and with the acting and the sharing that it looks seamless and true and authentic. And that's the takeaway. It doesn't always have to be like food porn. It's the moment. I think that's something that will forever change me and my approach to some of these scenes and whatever gets thrown at me in the future. But the element of just going, okay, having people, you know, serve themselves actually helps everybody for continuity and for the actors to actually choose what it is that they want on their plates and be in front of for hours, like things like that. Are there any moments on set when you and your team look at each other and say, what would Julia do? All the time. And we always just go, should just charge on pick it up and charge on. My team, all aside for our Tony, he's our only man, we're a team of women. And we enter a room shoulder to shoulder. And we have a lot to thank Julia for, for that too. And all women in, in our in our food community and who've restaurant work, everybody. And that's how we operate. 
we're kind of like a no BS team of people. Yeah, and we show up, we get the job done, and we we go home to our families. Sounds very Julia Child. Christine, last question. Julia's coming over for dinner. What do you serve? I'll make her fried chicken because it was such a hit at the feast in uh, episode two. People still talk about the fried chicken. We get texts asking for the recipe from crew members. What was so magical about the fried chicken? It was really hard making the fried chicken in France, I have to say, because we had to play with the flowers because they have different, like a different consistency flour than what we would do here. Less is more like a nice, simple buttermilk brine, nothing fancy. And then on the side, we would have the honey and we had the flaked sea salt and people went to town on it. And, and what was really fun is cooking fried chicken in France with crew members of the French who were, who were from France who've never had it before, their eyes would just light up. We'll have French for life over fried chicken. And I think we could revisit that when cooking for Julia. And that episode, it's James Beard's recipe. Mm-hmm. But we could not find, unless someone out there in the hemisphere has a James Beard recipe, please send it to me because we could not find one. So Rachel was in charge of just making a very simple brine and we tested the flowers and oils and we cracked the cracked the code. We cannot find the James Beard fried chicken recipe for the life of us. There's a challenge for our listeners. If you've got the recipe, folks, DM Christine. Yeah, because like everything I, everything I do is is very highly researched and that really bummed me out and that to give up on trying to find it. Christine Tobin, thank you so much for the gift you have given us and all the beautiful work on season two. Thank you very, very much. This is always incredible to talk. Next, let's check in with a modern day Julia, Deb Perlman of Smitten Kitchen. I've always said if you want to get to know a person, take them out to dinner and watch them eat. (laughs) Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Whether it's routine maintenance and emergency repair or a dream project, Angie lets you compare quotes from multiple local pros, browse homeowner reviews, and even book a service instantly. Angie's been connecting people with skilled pros for nearly 30 years. So the next time you have a home project, bring it to Angie to get your job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Deb Perlman, welcome to Dishing on Julia. Thanks for having me on. Let's talk about Smitten Kitchen first. So curious, the origin story. How did Smitten Kitchen come about? I started Smitten Kitchen in 2006, which is absolutely crazy. It just started as a hobby. I really knew very little about cooking, and I was just messing around. Wait, that shocks me. I knew my way around a kitchen, but it was really just like a hobby where I was trying out recipes like how to roast a chicken or how to make soup or how to make tomato sauce from a can of tomatoes. And I was trying out recipes, and I knew early on that I was very opinionated, like, don't do this. Like, even from the beginning... I was like, this was a bad idea. I wish the recipe had warned me about this. So I feel like it was always inside me. And then starting Smitten Kitchen just gave me a place to yammer on about the food I was excited about and the way I'd rather make it. I did not expect it to last more than six months. I was confident that it was going to be a short-term thing. I didn't know why anyone would read a food site from somebody who is not a cooking professional, did not work at a restaurant, hadn't been to cooking school. I didn't expect it to last. And then here we are. Let's talk about your mom. My mom. 
Tell us what the Judy Julia project was. <laughs> I've joked about this, but my parents got married in 1968, and my mom didn't really know how to cook. Nobody really taught her. Nobody thought that was going to be her destiny. My mom is from Queens, a German-Jewish family. My father is from the Bronx. I don't know why this is relevant, except for they're both New Yorkers. Neither of them are great cooks, but my dad thinks he knows a little bit more than my mom, and he thinks he's going to teach her how to cook. And my mom was like, no, absolutely not. Like, the idea of having this person, it was not appealing to her in any way. Around that time, she turns on PBS, and she sees the French chef, and she falls in love. She absolutely loves this. She's like, this is it. This is what I want to cook. She's smitten. She's smitten. I think she liked her loud voice and her kind of surprising demeanor and her... I don't know, there's a real imperfection to it, but she's also making this food that everybody loves, like omelets and asparagus and onion soup and beef bourguignon. These are my mom's favorite foods, so we had them. These are things we ate growing up. Totally normal. So we know the Julie Julia project. (laughs) Your mom basically embarked on what you have called the Judy Julia project. Yes. I wouldn't say she cooked right through it, but I think she learned a lot of stuff from the books early on, and she just found found the cooking that she wanted to do that excited her. And was it Mastering the Art of French Cooking? Was that the one she ma- cooked through? And she, had, she has the second book, too. I have to ask her specifically which things she's tried from Richard Check where the bookmarks are. But she did a little bit of each, and I remember it being peppered in growing up. Nothing fancy, but just if his company was coming over or, like, I remember the first time my in-laws came over, my mom made beef bourguignon, as one does. Did you watch Julia growing up? I feel like I watched it a few times. Like, I'm probably old enough that it would have been on, but not a lot to me. You know, at the time, I was probably like a kid watching Sesame Street, you know, and like it seemed old fashioned and different to me. And it didn't, it wasn't relevant to me in my life at the time. But I love watching old episodes now because there's something so wonderfully unpolished about it. And I think that's so surprising because everything on TV these days, even the stuff that's not supposed to be polished, is so polished. The food never looks imperfect. There's never like, whoop, we ran out of time to take a bite. Like that would never happen. Of course, we have editing now, but I thought it's really interesting to watch. When people do call you a modern-day Julia Child, why do you think they make that comparison? I'm very flat. We share a publisher, which is very nice. Knopf. Yes, I also published by Knopf. I think it was less of a fight by the time they wanted to publish me than it might have been for Judith Jones back in the day. But she was the first of many cookbooks that she brought into life. I'm not entirely sure why. Maybe it's the self-taught thing. Maybe it's the, I don't know. I'm not trying to be perfect or anything like that. I just want things to work. I think something really interesting and what's very relevant about what Julie Child is, she took this classic French cooking and she tried to make it work for like American housewives. What did you call it? The, the servantless American cook. But you read that and it sounds so silly, but at the time it was like semi-revolutionary. It wasn't like condescending cooking. It was like, you can do this cooking. And I love that energy. What do you think is the biggest difference between you and Julia? The biggest difference, I am chewing on this question because I feel like our backgrounds are so different. She's from a completely different time. I feel like I could be wrong and I don't want to read in where I'm not reading in. But by the time she was married, I'm not sure she was really expected to work which meant it was time to find hobbies, which means that she could have a hobby of going to cooking school, which I could not imagine 
less being like my life. It was never an option not to cook. I considered cooking school, and it was so expensive, and I wasn't sure that the debt I was going to take on I'd ever pay down, which is an, an unfortunate reality I've heard from a lot of people. So I, I think I don't want to say that the difference is privilege because that's kind of unfair. That's just you are who you are, but I do. it is a bit of it. I feel like she might be braver than me. I feel like I try new things, and you might only hear about the things that go well, but I think it's just incredible that she was like, I have a vision for a cooking show. Like, I, I couldn't even imagine. She thought big, and I think that's amazing. Deb, what did you do before Smitten Kitchen? I don't know much about your pre-Smitten life. I have had so many jobs. I was a tech reporter. I was an art therapist for a while. All of these things now relative to how long I've been doing this are like little blips on the radar. I worked at coffee shops, worked at an ice cream shop in college. I ran my college radio station. It was like this big. So I feel like I was a real dabbler before I figured out the combination of things that made me happy, which is really funny because if I had listened to my grandmother, she told me this is what I should have been doing the whole time. And I was like, what are you talking about? I don't know how to cook. Let's talk about recipes because that is a big topic of discussion in the first two episodes of season two. Mm -hmm. Julia and Simka just cannot decide. First off, they can't agree on the recipes. Mm -hmm. How do you decide what goes into each book? I really like that. I was watching the first episode and I really like that because I felt it's a real thing that happens because any recipe has its foot in a couple doors. You have like the aspirations you have for the recipe, and then you have the reality of how it's going to be made and if it's going to be made. And if you make something too aspirational and perfect, nobody's going to make it. And that's okay. There's a place for recipe books like that. But if you're really trying to make it for the servantless American cook, things are going to have to be adjusted and your comfort level. And I think the success of it will have to do with being a very good translator of these ambitions into something simple with things you can get at a grocery store. It's a gut thing, and it's sometimes it's just asking around where I have to hear people out and I have to be reminded but that not everybody is as into fennel as I am, even if they're wrong. But I would say it's a little bit, a lot of paying attention. One thing I'm really lucky about is I have a very active and busy comment section on my site. And it's sort of like my unpaid, you know, quality testing research where people will tell you, they will tell you what they don't want to do. Deb, why does this have three pots? Can you rework this? Or why am I chiffonading anything, Deb? Like they will say it. And if you listen, the information's there and it really can help you point your cooking in a direction that'll be more usable and useful to other people. Are you a stickler about recipes in the same way that Julia was? Absolutely. I love a recipe. I love a recipe. I'm not saying I couldn't make soup out of what I have in the fridge. I don't want to. I want to make the good soup, the one I've made before where I knew exactly the right amount of celery and onion. And I think we should defend recipes and also our innate desire for some of us to come home and actually have somebody else take the wheel. Somebody just tell me I will do the thing, but I don't want to think anymore. I've been like running my adult life, my whole day. And sometimes it's really nice for a recipe to just say, here's how to make a really great dinner. I got this. I love that. You hear a lot of chefs and cookbook authors these days who say, I want to do a whole cookbook with no recipes, mm -hmm. but my publisher said I had to. <laughs> I think there's room for both kinds. There are people who feel really like this is really restricting me and I know what I want to do. And I think that's great. But for me, when I've made a vegetable soup or a bean dish or a chicken exactly the way I loved it, I'm going to start there. And if I want to do it with different things I will or different ingredients or what I have, but I'm going to start with something that I know works because I don't want to play roulette twice. 
I want to go back to this comment section. It's a very friendly comment section. It is a friendly yes. comment section. I think I have very nice people reading, but I think it's a little bit of like moms in the room listening and your behavior might be a little bit different because I am paying attention. This is not the Wild West. I read, I see it, I respond. If it's a question mark, I try to answer it. I mean, not every comment's going to be responded to, but I try to answer questions. And I think it's a little different when you don't feel like you're shouting to the abyss. You might feel nicer. One of the things I love about the show is that they are communicating different things through Julia. This is not a show about food. I mean, you can watch it, and it's a show with gorgeous food Mm -hmm. in it, especially episode two with those amazing Mm -hmm. scenes in Provence of the kind of cook-off dinner between Mm -hmm. Simca and Julia. But they use Julia as a vehicle to talk about other things, reproductive rights, women's place in the world. But I feel like when I go to your site, food is food. (laughs) If I'm interpreting this correctly, food's not so much about politics for you, but it's about storytelling. I think it's about storytelling. I think it's about it's about home. It's about comfort. It's about what you want to have on the table, what you want to put in your body and how you want to like who you want around the table and who you invite over and where you shop and what you can like. There's so many other pieces. And I think a good recipe will be aware of all of them. Let's talk about food styling. (laughs) Where do you stand on that? I, you know what, just like me, the food sometimes needs better light to look cute. (laughs) I think it's a reality. I don't think it's beneath us to care about food styling. They probably thought it was frivolous that TV was a thing, but this is just the reality. This is the media we're in, including podcasting. It matters. It's just another way to express what you're trying to express. So I try to take it seriously, but not not overly styled. I also don't want my food to look different from yours. It might have better light. Maybe I thought about the plate I put it on, but it shouldn't be like I made this and look nothing like hers. And now I feel bad about my cooking. Like, how is that? going to be part of my goals for cooking at all or sharing recipes. So I'm looking for it to look the way it would look at home, but like maybe I clean up the plate, maybe. In the process of working on this uh, podcast and and going so deep into the world of Mm -hmm. Julia Child, I often find myself wondering what you would think about things today. And there is such an obsession about food styling. And that is one of the glorious things about the show. The food is just styled So so spectacularly. I do think there's a little bit of a misunderstanding about food styling because people think it's just hairspray and toothpicks. But the food stylist in any magazine or any book, they're actually the cook. They're actually, they may not be developing the recipes, but they're also cooking it. They're often getting the groceries and making the dish happen. It's their, their job is not hairspray. You know? like, it's not, not that there would be anything wrong with that, but this is not just zhuzhing chicken skin into place, which is a truly disgusting thought. I'm sorry to put that idea in your head. There is a lot more skill to it. Most of them have gone to cooking school, and it's a real skill set. And the reality is we want to see our food these days. We can do four-color printing. It's not prohibitively expensive anymore. And that means that you're going to want it to represent the way you want the food to look for other people. And there is a movement today in food styling to avoid all that trickery. Christine Tobin, who's the food stylist on Julia, almost all the food that you see in the show is actually cooked from Julia's recipes. It's great. And it's so great because it means that if you go home and you're inspired and you go pull out the book from your shelf and you make this fish in the pastry, um, it's going to look like that. And you can see that it's imperfect. And I think that's the right way. And that's very central to what I like to do with my own pictures because it's that idea of, like, it's good light. Maybe it's good ingredients, but it's just home-cooked food. Did you cook from Julia's books ever? 
I have. I have also made her beef bourguignon. I always made her onion soup. I've made some of her quiches. I don't think it's in a specific book, but she described it in her the book of her letters, I think, to Avis, where she was talking about this baked spinach she had had, and it's now my favorite baked spinach. And you're thinking, oh, it must be laden with cream and everything else. It's not. I think it's a misunderstanding of French food that although it values butter and is not, it's not afraid of butter, it's not, not everything is so crazy rich. I love this baked spinach. I want to make it for Thanksgiving. Are people intimidated to invite you over for dinner? I hope not, but maybe that's why I don't get invited for dinner more often. I love going over for dinner. I There is no... I judge restaurants. I don't judge friends' homes. It is so nice to be cooked for. It is such a special thing. It is like what I make my livelihood, like my hobby and my enjoyment is from like feeding people. And I love when it comes back around. Like imagine coming over and you didn't do anything and dinner is made. I don't think I've experienced it very often. (laughs) Do you think people were scared to invite Julia over for dinner? Oh, they must have been. They must have been. I think it's it's fair. I'm going to have to find a better way of explaining. Like, I'm not judging. Like, I am so happy to be there. It's, I'm in it for the around the tableness, and it's not about whether the chicken was perfectly cooked at all. That's not what you're there for. We might have found the place where you and Julia differ because Chef Eric Repair, in the first episode of Dishing on Julia for season two, told us by the time Julia came to La Bernadette, his restaurant, he served a raw tuna dish on purpose, and Julia told him it was undercooked. Ah, did she know it was supposed to be no, raw? Obviously not. I mean, there's going to be some point where I probably am not absorbing new ideas either. I'd like to think she was pretty far up there in the years, but maybe not. That is hilarious. So people don't have to worry when you come over, though. You're not going to judge if something's a little undercooked. No, I'm not. I don't Purpo- want you to show. Purposefully undercooked. No, I, and I, it's not even like I'm turning it off. I'm just like, I'm very happy to be there. It's a really beautiful thing to open up your table in your home to somebody. It's great. Also in this episode, we have the arrival of Judith Jones at the house in Provence to mm-hmm. try to figure out why is this book taking so long. You have somewhat of a connection to Judith Jones. A little bit of a connection. So my publisher of my three cookbooks is Knopf. And although Judith Jones has passed away a few years ago, I know in the beginning my editor Lexi Bloom had worked with Judith a bit. And I know there was a little bit of overlap in the time between my book being signed. I think Judith might have just been at large or nearby or she can, but I know that she had chatted with her about my book. I want to know what they said, though. I didn't ask at the time. I was probably too afraid. You should ask now. I should definitely ask now. Imagine having such an eye for cookbooks. So many of the household names that we consider classic chefs, like classic cookbook, they're all Judith Jones. And in the first season, you just see her struggling. You see her struggling because, you know, she's not doing her classic fiction. And my editor also did a lot of fiction before she went to cookbooks full time. And that struggle she's having where they didn't really understand what she was doing or how it could be a literary pursuit. And I think that's something Knopf does really well. Her work life's not that much easier this season either, as everyone will see. But some of the things you alluded to, she was the editor of Edna Lewis, one of the most important American chefs. Mm -hmm. She also is responsible for the cookbook career of Mother Joffrey Mm -hmm. and so many others. So James Beard. Yeah, Mm -hmm. James Beard, too. And at the same time... She's the person who rescued the diary of Anne Frank from the slush pile. Which is what she had recently done by the time she found Julia, and people couldn't believe that wasn't something she was going to work on. So she really had a very keen eye for storytelling, ear for storytelling, and 
I love the way to her it was no different to publish a cookbook, that there could be stories in there just as relevant as some of the most important texts. That's incredible. It's wonderful that you're part of this legacy. She didn't even know she would have one day. <laughs> yes, I will, try, I will try to keep it up, but mostly I'm just honored to be there. That's a nice little tee up for the last question. Julia is coming over for dinner. Oh my what, goodness. What do you serve? Do we make tuna tartare? <laughs> <laughs> well, Eric said he's going to make that again. I don't know, but I, why am just thinking about it? I feel like it would be really fun to do sparrows. <laughs> it's not even like my, my, but just something that she's not, I would never make French food for her. I feel like I would make anything but because she's got this covered. But I also think you really can't go wrong with a really good roast chicken and vegetables, which is what I'm actually making for dinner when I get home. I'm going to try to spatchcock the chicken, and then I want to put a lot of vegetables around it. I'm going to make a little sauce that we eat with the chicken. I love like a little herby thing. And then I think I want to saute some greens because I'm craving it. So we'll see how much of that gets done before 6 o'clock. <laughs> You're going to roast a chicken for Julia Child. I think I'm going to do it. I mean, it's basically what I'm making for my family for tonight, and I think she should come over and have that too. My yeah. follow-up question is, why was the first thing you said spare Because my first thought is, like, what is something she's probably not made at home? And I'm like, wouldn't it be fun to do, like, spare ribs and, like, fried rice and, like, but something you, you abandoned like, that, yeah, that I that abandoned. Idea. I was like, but what am I actually making for dinner? Because what you're making is what you want to make, I think, you know, unless you're just fully making it for somebody else and you're holding your nose while you're doing it. So I think the reality is maybe I would just make her a basic little feel like we're not getting enough vegetables in Friday night dinner. All right. I love that because I have to say when you said spare ribs, I was like, okay, wild card. Wild card. I know. I feel like it would be fun to do both. What would you two talk about? Oh, my goodness. I would have so many questions about living in France. I would love to hear about, like, the publishing industry. I would love to hear how she wrote recipes. Like, how did she distill these things? What were, like, the things she would never put in a recipe? What were the things that she wished she had, if there were any recipes she wished she had written differently? If there were things she wished she had tried? I would just love to hear about, like, how she felt at the end, having distilled all of these big ideas into, like, a few, you know, several hundred recipes, many hundred recipes. Did she feel good about it? I think we would all love to eavesdrop on that conversation. I would definitely record it bug under the table. Deb, so good to see you. <laughs> I remain smitten with you, as always. Thank you for having me here. It's so fun to chat. Thank you to Christine Tobin and Deb Perlman for joining us on Dishing on Julia, the official companion podcast of Julia, now streaming on Max. Dishing on Julia is produced by the Cherry Bomb Podcast Network. Special thanks to Stephen Toll and the team at CityVox. Our executive producers are Catherine Baker and Yasmin Nesbat. Our associate producer is Jenna Sadu, and our editorial assistant is London Crenshaw. I'm your host, Carrie Diamond. We'd love for you to leave a rating and review for Dishing on Julia on your favorite podcast platform, and be sure to subscribe. Tell me who you think the modern-day Julia is in the review. I'd love to know. It's been lovely spending this time with you, and I'll leave you with this thought from James Beard. What a special evening, a celebration for no real reason at all, which is the very best kind of celebration. Hacks is coming back, and so is the official Hacks podcast. With us, your hosts. I'm Paul W. Downs. I'm Jen Statsky. And I'm Lucia Aniello. We're the creators and showrunners. Each week on the podcast, we'll break down the new episodes. 
We'll also have special guests, cast and crew from the show like Hannah Einbinder and Gene Smart. Hack Season 3 is available to stream now on Max. Be sure to listen wherever you get your podcasts or listen directly on Max.